0: Okay, let's go back to where we were. I don't, I think it was page eight or nine on your things, wherever it says, um, remember this a text without a context is a pretext or proof text. Okay. And then there's some verses on the next page, right? The top of the next page. All right. I just want to finish that uh, before we move on to the slides for tonight, just to kind of deal with that issue the importance of a proper hermeneutic why <clears throat> why we need to have a proper hermeneutic some of you may have been thinking that what what's the importance for hermeneutic anyway obviously we talked a lot about the definition of hermeneutics and those kinds of things but in 2 Timothy chapter 2 <clears throat> we get a a reminder or at least a a little bit of an understanding from the apostle Paul as as he's reminding Timothy of how to deal with the Scriptures. <clears throat> and he says to him in verse 14, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. And Then verse 16, he says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter if, because it will lead to further ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them is Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. So you notice that the Apostle Paul in verse 15 says, or in verse 14 says to Timothy, there's at least two things you need to do, Timothy, when it comes to the word of God. You need to remind them of these things. So, which means Timothy needs to understand them if he's going to be able to remind them. And also to solemnly charge them not to wrangle about words. Because we can get tied up in all kinds of knots when we're just wrangling about words because no one knows what it means by what it says. And so there's an importance there in that text just about hermeneutics, really, without even using the terminology. That we have to understand the Bible if we're going to talk about the Bible rightly. And he says to him in verse 16, Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Avoid things that are defined in such a way that it's the world's philosophy and not God's ways, which are just empty things. They're like the bag of chips you buy at the grocery store. It has a lot of air in it, but there's no real substance to it. That's what it is. When we talk about things, we have no meaning. And then, of course, the importance of it is because people go astray with these things. There's people talking about the resurrection, two two men talking about the resurrection in a way that they should not be talking about it. Hold on, my phone is ringing and I don't want it to. And uh, they're leading others astray. They're talking about the resurrection that's already taken place, which hasn't happened because there's another resurrection, a spiritual resurrection, as well as a resurrection into the future that we will all, who are Christians, be a part of. And so there is bad people out there saying bad things. And so avoid that kind of thing. Uh, Remove yourself from that by understanding the text. Well, how do you do that? Well, verse 15 says, tells us, right? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Well, that's the cure. That's the the way in which we avoid those kinds of things that Timothy's being warned at, right? Present yourself approved. That is, we have to do it the way God wants it. And God is our director. God is our audience. So Paul's warning Timothy about how to handle the word of God, handle it in a proper and an accurate way. And so the context is not preaching. He's not talking about Timothy preaching. He's not talking about some kind of formal thing. He's really just saying deal with these things in a way that is accurate and proper according to the way God would have it. So Paul wants Timothy to be careful in his hermeneutics, dealing with all kinds of situations that he's going to deal with, whether it is formal or informal. We see this again in 1 Timothy. Just turn back a few pages. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, again, telling Timothy, beginning in verse 3, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Teach them not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies that give rise to speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Our goal, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Some men straying from those things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. They want to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand what they're saying. They make confident assertions about things they don't know anything about. So there again, Paul's cautioning Timothy about his hermeneutic. Right? Be careful how you handle the word of God. Be careful how you talk about these things. Be careful in your handling of the truth. And you say, well, why is that such an important thing? Well, go over to chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's why it's extremely important, because the Spirit explicitly says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Why? How? Exactly. <laughs> She phoned a friend. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> so it says he's there, that in latter days, there's going to be some who will fall away from the faith. How? By paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So they're, they're listening to things that are bad hermeneutic, wrong meaning. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, says with a branding iron, men who teach all strange kinds of things. They forbid marriage. They advocate abstaining from certain foods which God has created and gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And Paul goes on and says, everything's created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. And so he says in verse 6, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. So have nothing to do with worldly fables that's only fit for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Right? Do all you can disciplining yourself, right, for the purpose of godliness. Why? Because bodily discipline is good for only here, But godliness is good for here and the life to come. So this is why hermeneutics is so important. Because God's Word matters. God's Word matters. What God says matters. And we need to understand what God says and what He means by what He says because it matters. And so tonight I want to I want to talk about, or at least begin to talk about, the hermeneutic five-step bridge. The hermeneutic five-step bridge. The first step is the understanding gap. The understanding gap. What do we mean when we say that? We mean, what did the words mean when we read them in the Bible? What did they mean to the original audience? We're not the original audience. We're 2,000 plus years removed from the original audience. What did these mean to the original audience? So you have to take special note of the grammar and all of the significant words that are involved in that. What is the historical and the literal context? In other words, what's the history going on in the time that that was written? What is the literary context? What kind of literature are, you, are we reading? And of course, we're, I'm giving you a broad view of these. We're going to cover these over time as we go through our class. But this is the broad view, right? The understanding gap. We have to synthesize the meaning of the passage for the the recipients in in that time, and it, it would be good for us when you read a text to just kind of in your own mind synthesize it in your mind in maybe one or two sentences of what's being said. Okay, uh, so we when we communicate the original intent. Uh, We're not interested in just giving somebody a bunch of facts about something. We want to make sure we're giving the intent of the meaning of the text. So, this is part of our understanding gap when we think about that. Uh, For example, go to Joshua chapter 1. Right after Deuteronomy, Joshua chapter 1, right? We know what what kind of is going on in Joshua chapter 1, right? God is commanding the Israelites in Joshua chapter 1 to what? Say it again. Into Canaan, right? To go take the land, conquer the land, and divide the land up. Right? So the original audience that this is being written to is the Israelites. Right? Go into all the land and divide up the land and conquer the land. So it isn't a that isn't an imperative for us in our Christian life to look at that and go, oh hey. Joshua is being commanded to go conquer a land. That's a command for us as Christians to go out and conquer. That's not what it's saying, right? There's principles there that we can draw, but but we're not before we do any of that, we have to understand what it was saying, what it was being said and what was being said to the original audience. So when Joshua commands the people and the people do that and and they go through all of that process to conquer the land. We can understand that God is moving his people in a direction and separating them from those whom he had not chosen. And so it teaches us something about God and an overall reality. But Joshua chapter one's command, God commanding Israel to go and conquer is not a command for us. Right. And so uh, it's just an example of this understanding gap uh, in an overall sense. Secondly, step two is the differences gap. Differences gap. What's the what is. Really, when we talk about differences, we're talking about the 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 width of the gap, if you will, between the original audience and us. What are the differences between them, that it was was being written to, and us? What are the differences between their situation and us today? We're looking at Joshua, right? Joshua 1, 1 to 9. If you were to read that text, you have to ask yourself the question, okay, what are the differences between them and us today? What's going on with them and what's going on with us We're not entering into the promised land, right? We are not leaders of the nation of Israel, right? So what are the differences that we have to think through in order then to understand that through this differences gap, this bridging of this gap? What are the the theological differences overall between the Old Testament and the New Testament text? Right, if we're reading a New Testament text, that's speaking about something from the Old Testament, we have to understand the differences between those situations. Are there any kind of unique things that are taking place in the situation, unique aspects of that? Oftentimes we we come up with a wrong understanding of things because we fail to measure that. We fail to look at that. And we just start throwing out human guesses. Right? told somebody uh, recently that that has a tendency to do that when we're talking about bible stuff I say you like to shoot holes in the bottom of your boat you're just throwing darts at everything you know you hit all kinds of stuff but that's not what we're to do we're not about making guesses and then misapplying those things we're trying to bridge those gaps so we can have an understanding of what the bible means by what it says so you have the understanding gap you have this differences gap that we have to bridge. Thirdly, you have a theological gap. A theological gap. We mentioned it in the differences gap. What are the theological principles in a certain text? You say, why? Well, because theological principles are part of the meaning of a text. Part of the meaning. This is a when we talk about theology, we're talking about the study of God. This is God's word. So, so it's a theological book. It's a book filled with theology, the study of God. That's what we're doing. So as God gives specific instructions to specific recipients in the Bible that happened centuries ago, At the same time, God in doing that is giving universal principles to all of his people, right? So what was being understood about God in the Old Testament can be how we understand God today, theologically. The theology of God uh, is is always there, uh, and it has implications for us in our time, so the theological principle should be in perfect agreement with the rest of the Word of God. In other words, you can't have a theological principle that you draw from somewhere in the Old Testament and it contradict the theological principle that you find somewhere else. So how do we do that? How, what are the guidelines for determining theological principles? Let me just list a few of them for you, and you can write them down. One, it has to be reflected in the text. It can't just be something willy-nilly that you might have thought of in your own mind. It has to be reflected in the text. It also has to be universal or timeless, meaning it's not simply tied to a specific situation in the text, and that's the only place it is, right? Right? For instance let's just take the verse Jeremiah 29:11, right? Jeremiah 29:11, right? I have a plan for you, a plan to prosper you, make you whole. I'll just go there and read it so we have it clearly in our minds because this is such an abused verse. Jeremiah twenty nine, eleven, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Right? Now there's theological principle there about God, but is God talking about you specifically there? No, because the principle, right, of that you had on the page uh, a couple pages back in your, maybe the last last page, remember the big quote we gave? A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, right? If you don't read the context of Jeremiah 29, you'll come away with all kinds of nonsense when it comes to that verse. And so there's a specific situation being addressed there. but it's not specifically speaking to us individually. A theological principle has to be timeless and not tied to a specific situation, and it must not be culturally bound. In other words, I can't develop theological principles by the culture around us. I'll give you one, and this is a very hot topic. Women wearing head coverings. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 women head coverings, is that for today? Well, some would say it is. Some it's a theological principle for today, for everybody. And if you're not doing that, ladies, you're sinning. That's what some would say. Well, is that a principle that's culturally bound to the time? Well, you better understand the culture of the day in order to get a right understanding of that passage and what's being talked about. Because there are theological principles there, but the theological principles in my argumentation from the text would have nothing to do with head coverings at all and everything to do with the theological principle of submission as God would choose to show submission. So it has to be not culturally bound if it's a theological principle. And it has to correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. And then finally, it needs to be relevant to both the biblical audience and you, the contemporary audience. So that's the theological principle. So you have the the theological gap. Which one? It needs to be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. Everybody getting all those, or should I repeat them all? Repeat them all. Okay, so it needs to be reflected in the text. needs to be timeless and not tied to a specific situation in the text. It needs to be not culturally bound. It should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. And it should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. All right, so we have the understanding gap, the differences gap, the feel. Can everybody see the slides in the back, by the way, just to make sure? Okay. And then number four, the implications gap. The implications gap. What do we mean when we say implications gap? What we're talking about is what are the possible implications of a text? What are the possible implications of what I'm reading in the Bible, in light of my life? Now, let me say it this way: There's only one implication in a text, but there's multiple applications of a text. You said it again: There's one implication even though there may be multiple applications. For example, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives. What's the implication of that phrase? Husbands, love your wives. Pretty simple. (laughs) Love your wife. What's the application of that phrase? which will be different for you than it would be for somebody else, right? What about a single guy reading that verse? Is there any implication for that for some single man who's not married? What's the principle, right? What's the implicational principle being taught, the theological principle? Love. I can learn love. Right? Husbands, love your wife, particularly as you read on in the text, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So love is to be sacrificial. So there's an implication. I have to love sacrificially. Well, how's that going to be applied in my life, whether I'm single or not? Right? There's some specificity to that implication, an application for a husband who has a wife but there are implications for someone who doesn't have a wife, particularly when it talks about love and how love is to be exercised. So you can kind of see how that works, right? How does the theological principle best apply to your situation? That's what we're talking about. That's what implication is. Right? Truth We've 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 thought about this. We've I think I've even said this in the past if you've been part of our church at all. This is not truth is not tr- or truth that is not applied is truth that is denied. Think about that. Truth that's not applied is truth that is denied. So that's talking about the implication of a truth and then applying it in the various areas of my own life where I need it. So that leads us then to the fifth step, which is the application gap. The application gap, right? What in other words, what are the specific specific changes that need to occur in my life? In light of the implication of that tech. What are the changes that need to happen in light of the implications. And, of course, we talked about Ephesians 5 in that. So what are the changes, what specific changes are the, or is the theological principle of that text calling upon in my life to make? Even though Ephesians 5 talks to husbands, there are implications for every Christian there. Everybody got that? So there's a just a little illustration there of it all. Right? Step 1, what did these words mean to the original recipient? <clears throat> Step 2, what's the width of that gap between that biblical audience and me? Step 3, what are the theological principles in the text? Step four, what are the possible implications of the text? And then, of course, step five, what are the specific changes that need to occur in my life? So you go from God's Word to the practice in our own heart, right? Putting it into practice. We're bridging those gaps, the cultural gap, the language gap, the situation, history, literary literary, all of those things. All right, so let's get down to some more boring things. Skills for observing a biblical text. What we're talking about is just observation here. Just observation. Skills for observing the biblical text. First thing we want to talk about is what is in a sentence. That's what we have. Now, here is a problem with us when we read our Bibles. Most of us read verses, don't we? Stop doing that. Stop doing that. The verse numbers are not inspired. They were not put there by God. They were put there just for our helps in years past. What you need to do and what you need to get yourself in a habit of doing is reading sentences. Look for punctuation in your Bible. Look for punctuation in your Bible. If you don't do that, you will find yourself reading things strangely. Uh, There is a a, uh, portion in... Ephesians chapter 1 yeah we'll read it Ephesians chapter 1 verses one verses three and four okay I want to read verses three and four just as we have it in our Bible I'm reading from the New American standard Bible some of your translations may, come across a little different in this, but this is how it's read in the New American Standard. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Wait a minute. I just read verses. Come on. You see what happens? You see right there in verse 4, there's a period after him. So verses 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 end after him, and a new sentence starts with, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, verse 5. right? That's how it reads in the English. I'll just tell you in the original language, there isn't even a period there. The original language, the Apostle Paul would have flunked English class because it's a run-on sentence from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. One sentence in the original language. But because our ears and our euphonic way of listening to English, we can't handle that. The translators break it up and give us sentences. But you notice in the translation, there's a period there. And then they start with in love at the end of the verse. Well, if you're just reading verses, you're going to be all kinds of confused because you're going to say, okay, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And so little prepositional phrase at the end, in love, the preposition I-N, in love, you're going to go, okay, where does that fit? So it's this in love kind of idea when that has to do with the next phrase. And you'll get confused, and you'll, you'll go away and go, well, this is just too hard to understand. I can't do it. So what is in a sentence? That's what I want us to do. I want us to understand what's in a sentence, okay? So we're going to kind of go through these. We'll be on this <clears throat> for a little while tonight. What's in a sentence? First of all, there's repetition of words. Yes. Okay. The the question I'm going to repeat it for the for the people who are listening somewhere else. Anyway, the question is in the in the Legacy Standard Bible, that's the LSB, right? There's only a comma there, not a period, and so Joe is saying, do you? In love, right? So there's no period after him. They have a comma after love. So the translators, which is the Lockman Foundation, the same translators of the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bible, have changed the punctuation to try to reflect more of the original language, which is one sentence from three to fourteen. So they put a comma there because what does a comma do when we're reading? Let well, me we take a little breath, right? We slow down a little bit. So that's all they're trying to do, right? In the in the version that I read, which was the when they brought out the New American Standard, they put a period there, a full stop. Choo-choo, stop. They're still, yes. The fact is, the, f- the fact is, when we're reading, we want to read a sentence, and a sentence ends with what? Period. period, or an exclamation point, or a question mark, or something that ends, right? And a comma would tell us, keep going, yeah. keep going. So that's good. So thanks for the question to clarify so repetition of words we want to look for that in sentences right it reinforces repetition of words reinforces they support other words in a sentence okay so i want to just kind of use some examples as we go through this first john first john chapter 2 <clears throat> Just so we see this idea of repetition, right? Notice in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, the author, John the Apostle, says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, as you read that, what word you keep hearing over and over and over again? World, right? How many times does John say the word world there? Several times, Right? How many times does the word love occur? Many. So all of these are, are giving you clues to what the meaning, what the drive of that sentence and that phraseology that he's using there, what it says. Um, you can just write this verse down. We won't turn to there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7 on your own time. Read that. And just write down how many times does the word comfort occur? Second Corinthians chapter one verses three to seven. How many times does the word comfort used? Just just look at it and go, "Oh, okay. Oftentimes when I'm doing funerals and things like that, I'll read that passage because it's very important for us comforting one another. So re- repetition of words is important in a sentence. <clears throat> Anytime an author is repeating something, you ought to say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, that's got to be important. Right? That's got to be important. Right? Here's, here's one that's really important. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why would God say it three times? Exactly. <laughs> Holy, 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 right? God's saying, listen, don't forget this. Pay attention to this. This is important. Right? So repetition of words, very important. Number two, contrast. What do contrast do? Contrast help, help us build discernment, right? They, they give us this antithetical mindset, if you will. Uh, that helps us look at things rightly. Go to Pro, I'm going to just show you this in a few places. Proverbs 14. It's all over the Proverbs, but I'll just show you a few. Proverbs 14. Verse 31. And here's a contrast. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. But... He who is gracious to the needy honors him. So he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. Who's the maker? God. That's the implication. But there's the contrast. He who is gracious to the needy honors him. Who's the him referring to? God. Right? It's pointing back. It's the. You'll hear this term, the antecedent of maker maker and him are are the same person. Notice Notice Proverbs 15, verse 1, another contrast, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So it helps us have this discernment, right? Right? There's discernment with that contrast. Oh, if I answer this way, Wrath gets turned aside. Wrath doesn't get stirred up. Wrath doesn't start. But if I answer with this way, then anger comes. That's anger, which is a wrathful thing. So I, so I can gain discernment just by that, just by looking at the contrast. Now go into the New Testament. Go over to Romans. Romans chapter 6. Yeah, go ahead. sure sure the uh, the uh, translators try to do that in order to help us because because most uh, English speakers are grammatically illiterate, and so they help us uh, try to give us translations which will give us clues like that um, But you can't necessarily rely on those because you might pick up translations because in our day and age, there are even translations that try to make God a gender neutral. So you can't tell who it is. So Romans chapter 6, very common verse, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But... Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a, there's a discerning contrast. Right. We can know God, have our sins forgiven. Right. God has a free gift for us if we will confess our sin. Notice Ephesians five why I said have your Bibles, because we're going to be going a few places. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. Now, of course, I'm jumping into verses, so you guys know the principle where to read sentences. That's why you see me sometimes, like in church, I'll say, well, I want to read this verse, but I need to go back a few verses to get it in there. Well, this is one of those, just like that, right? If I start at verse 8, Verse eight begins with "For you were formerly darkness," but that's that's in the middle of a sentence, right? Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse seven: because or for, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. See, there's that contrast. For you were formerly darkness, but now, so this is how you walk. And he doesn't even end that sentence until verse ten. So from seven to ten is one sentence. And there's a contrast right there in the middle that helps build discernment of how you are to carry your life out as a believer, as a child of God, as one who was a children, a child of light. Right? And what does light consist of? Goodness, righteousness, truth. You have these contrasts that are going on. Anybody understand? Questions, confusions? But asleep yet well certainly to get we're we're just simply talking about sentences and observing sentences, but certainly in an understanding of the text itself yeah you're gonna you're gonna take more and we're gonna we after a sentence comes a paragraph after a paragraph comes a discourse after a discourse comes a book so we're we're gonna we're we're going through all that. Okay. So right now we're just we're going with the smallest and building out to the bigger. So we're in contrast and the and then number 3 comparisons, comparisons. They just simply highlight or expand a thought. They compare something with something else. Right, Proverbs again. Proverbs 25 verse 26 says like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked so so there is a con- there is a comparison going on right here's what a righteous man doing a compromising activity looks like or is like so that you can kind of get an idea in your mind. He's like a trampled spring. He's like a polluted well. He's dirty water. It's not good for you. That's the idea, right? So you want to hold on to that integrity. right? You, you compromise and give way to the wicked. You're like polluted water. Uh, we have it in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament as well, but I'll just show you one, James 3. James 3, verses 3 to 6. Now if you put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we, indir- we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. They, Even though they're so great, they're driven by strong winds, they still are directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Now here's the, here's the comparison. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. So the comparison is there with horses and with ships and the the way in which you can control large objects with something very very small. The comparison that's being made by James through the spirit is the tongue is a dangerous thing. It can it can do a lot of it can move a lot of big things in a wrong way if you're not careful. That's the idea. So the focus is on similarities. uh, The the comparison is often used in the Bible to teach a spiritual truth that's known or being shown by some physical reality like we've seen. Right. So there's there's a similarity going on that's being shown through comparison. And it's a spiritual... Truth that we're seeing by these physical realities that are being used. So in sentences, you have those things going on. Number four in your list is is uh, just that lists. Lists. Let's build details for comprehension, right? They they just stack on things for for better understanding, better comprehension. We we have this in. In verse, or in Galatians chapter five, one place, All right? When there's more than two items in a list, right? If you have more than two, it's a list. Galatians chapter five, you get you get a couple of good examples of this. Chapter five, verse twenty-two and twenty-three. The fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a list, right? It's a list. Against such things, there's no law. So there you have a list of things itemized down that help you understand what it looks like to live out obedience to the Spirit. This is what the Spirit produces. This is the fruit of the Spirit. I go up a couple Verses before that, you notice there's another list. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Also, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and He just goes on. I mean, right? So all of those help help us. Have a detailed, itemized understanding and comprehension of what it means to have the flesh work itself out. This is what goes on. You see that stuff in your life? That's fleshly. You see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? That's the Spirit because you're submitting to the things of God, submitting to the Spirit, and that's what's coming out of being produced in your life. So... You have to look at those things and maybe even ask yourself, what's the order of the list? Is there a significance in the order? Because oftentimes the original writers would write things in a list and put the most important things first in the list. They do that for emphasis. So are any of the items in the list grouped together in a certain way, in a specific way? You notice in... Paul's list in Galatians 5, verse 19, you have immorality, impurity, sensuality, right? Those seem to be relating to the area of sexual sin. Then you have idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, all these different things that deal with uh, the love of self and the desire to, to, to strike out at other people. And then, of course, you have drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So there's another area in which it's outworking. So there's there's almost a sense in which Paul is grouping these together to, to give us the idea of an overarching grouping of sinful activity that takes place. So these are things you have to look for. Lists, repetition of words, contrast, comparisons, lists, and then... Cause and effect. Cause and effect. This shows, this shows relationship. Effectual relationship between things. We looked at it before, but back in Proverbs 15, verse 1 again, you have this relationship going on. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So there's a cause and effect there. Right? The cause, gentle answer. The effect turns away wrath. The cause, a harsh word. The effect stirs up anger. You have that effectual cause and effect relationship going on. We saw it in Romans 6.23 as well. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So there's a cause and effect. Everybody got that clear? Okay. So so those are five things. There's four more things we look for in sentences. Figures of speech. Figures of speech. What's a figure of speech? Well, a figure of speech is just a way of saying something that aids our understanding by using Images, concrete images that we can know, right? Figures of speech are really used all the time. They're powerful in in literary forms because they they really paint images uh, that can relate to us very emotionally. They evoke a lot of emotion. I'll just show you this. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, it's all over the place in Psalm 119, but I'll just show you one thing, because it's a very popular verse that we all know, or at least we've heard of. Psalm 119, verse 105, this is is an example of a figure of speech. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right. Well, that's that's very good. That's a figure of speech. Is God's word an actual lamp? Is this an actual lamp? Oh, you don't light a bedroom with it. But it is it is drawing me with that that illuminating understanding, right? It's it's a it's a shining light on the direction of my life, my path. So it's, it's a lamp. Well, that's a figure of speech that invokes that emotion and that image in my mind of what it looks like. It's bright. It's shining. It's illuminating. Isaiah 40 in verse 31 talks about us being lifted up on eagle's wings. Right, that's another imagery. That's another literary Uh, figure of speech that helps us understand that we're not really riding on eagle's wings, but we can draw the image from that of soaring and being carried up and being lifted up, right? And it's a promise of God that God would do that. Jesus uses terminology in Matthew 23, verse 27, of the Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs figure of speech. They clearly understood it was something that happened in those days. They would they would paint the outside of the tombs in these clear colors. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. You're like that on the outside, but inside, he said, after that, you're dead. So you look good. On the outside, you're very clean. You're very washed up. But on the inside, you're, you're not. So all of those are figures of speech that help us gain understanding. What about conjunctions? Conjunctions. What do conjunctions do? They link ideas, right? They just link ideas. They're linking words. Think of conjunctions just as something that links two parts together. The word and, the word for, the word but. Therefore, because, there's a lot of conjunctions that help us link Things together. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. I know some of this um, seems rather mundane and uh, 10th grade grammar stuff. But if you think this is 10th grade grammar, you haven't seen nothing yet. Because this is what we need to understand. Because this is why we miss things. Notice Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. What's the word it begins with? Therefore. Therefore, that's a conjunction. Now if you think of a conjunction like that link between two train cars then you know, right as you're reading that, that that's linked to something else. So I can't understand the full meaning of the author without understanding what it's linked to. And anytime you see that conjunction, then you have to go backwards. You have to go back and read what is previous to that. And what you have previous to that is chapter 11, which is this whole chapter about all these people who live by faith. Right, You have a a whole catalog going all the way back to Abel, back in chapter 11, verse 4, and he walks through all kinds of named people and then several who were not named. And then he gets to chapter 12 and says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, since we have all these people from ancient times that lived by faith, that walked by faith, that, that, that... that endured horrific things simply because they were trusting God and they they got through it because they were trusting God. Therefore, in light of all of that, you too can lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles you and you can run with endurance the race that is set before you. Doing it the same way they did it. How did they do it? Verse 2, fixing their eyes on the author and perfecter of faith. Right? We know who that is. That's Jesus. They were trusting God, right? Jesus wasn't on the scene when they believed. They were believing what God said, just like we do. God says, "Believe upon my son and you will have you will have salvation." So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, sat down at the right hand of God. See, if you didn't understand the conjunction of therefore, you would never go back. So it's a critical thing to look for when you're understanding a text. And you've heard it here in our church a lot. You've heard it here. when the When you see the word therefore, ask it, what is the therefore therefore, right? You've heard that. So this is not new to you, but but drive it into your head so that when you read the scriptures, you see that and go, wait, look, let me hit my brakes. I got to go back and look at what that's about. Or I need to pay attention more closely to what I just read because the word therefore is there and that helps me understand what I'm reading now. Number eight, verbs, verbs, verbs. What's a verb? The word that tells us action. Let me tell you something. Meaning is in the verbs. Lock that in your mind. Meaning is in the verbs. And you have to to kind of make a special note of this. We're going to kind of look at this in some weeks to come. But make a note of this. Verbs, you have to know whether they're past, present, future verbs whether they're talking about the past whether they're talking about the present whether they're talking about the future whether it was an i went or i go or i will go right i went past tense i go present tense i will go future tense and is it something ongoing is it is it a continual action that that verb's talking about all these things are just just kind of giving you the overview, the umbrella of all of this. Is that is that action word a command? Is it a command that I need to do something, right? Ephesians chapter 4, just to give you an example, I want to make sure you have some examples that you can look at. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice notice when you when you hear when you think of command, a command is also known as an imperative, an imperative right? if I said to you, it is imperative that you do this, right it means you, you you have to do it, right that's that's a command, right? You must do it. that's imperative. Well notice Ephesians chapter four. Notice what he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Now notice all the, notice all of the uh, verbs, the imperative commands here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, all these are imperatives, all of these you need to walk in this way, and here's how you walk, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance. I mean, he's, he's giving us qualities to carry out in commanding them as we walk worthy because we are prisoners of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, you can just write it down, read it later. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 has active and passive verbs in it. Active and passive. So verbs are important. Verbs are where meaning lies. God is a God of verbs. And then, of course, number nine, pronouns. Pronouns. We've already touched on a little bit because I asked you when we read about the maker and I said, who's the him? Well, him is a pronoun, right? Words that substitute for a noun or another pronoun. Going back to your 10th grade grammar, a noun is a person, place, or thing, or idea. Person, place, thing, or idea. Right, So we have to be sure we identify the nouns, and nouns both have, isn't it interesting, in our world of gender confusion, language, I don't care which language you have, which you're in, which language you talk about, in language there are gender specifications to nouns. They're either masculine or feminine, or they're neuter. They have them all. We have to know that. For example, Ephesians chapter 3, or I'm sorry, chapter 1. Notice what it says. Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So you have two pronouns there, our and us. Who is that referring to? Believers. Us. Right? Specifically, who Paul is writing to, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. Or uh, verse one. I'm sorry. So, so the our and the us pronouns refer to Christians, saints. Go to Philippians chapter one. Let's just identify the pronouns there. Philippians chapter one. <clears throat> Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you, so that too from God, and that too from God. And he says, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Pronouns all over the place. All kinds of things. So who's Paul? Talking to, who's he addressing? I hear a lot of mumbling. What is it? Sometimes it's the Philippians. Sometimes he's referring to himself, right? Sometimes he's referring to God, right? For his sake, he says in verse 29. Believe in him, right? Right? So a lot so it's it's all of them. And so you have to identify so that we're not confused when we're reading these kind of things and, and come away with some bizarre understanding what's happening in a sentence. Sentences are important. Read sentences. Don't read verses. You somebody's gonna go away here, talk to a friend, and you're gonna say at our church, our pastor tells us not to read verses. Uh. Wait a minute. Finish the sentence. (laughs) Finish it, right? Read sentences. Sentences. Where's the meaning lie in a sentence? What? In the verb. verb. Read the verbs. We're going to learn what verbs are later on, farther down. Of course, this is overall. You guys are going, wait, I thought this was Herman class, not English class. Yes. Yes, it is. Right? It's about that. Time's is 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. The next thing we want to talk about is what's in a paragraph, but I'm not sure we have time. What's in a paragraph? Because there is 10 different... Things in the paragraph. We'll do a few of them and then we'll pick up where where we're going to leave off. Okay, so what's in a paragraph? What's in a paragraph? Here you go, right? What's in a paragraph? Well, you got paragraphs that move from general to specific, right? In other words, you have a broad beginning statement, potentially, and then you have the paragraph that explains more of the details. If any of you took English composition when you were in school, you understand that, right? Write a purpose statement, and then the paragraph flushes out the idea from the purpose statement. Well, that's exactly how God communicates with us, right? Notice Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and I'll just begin in verse 16, right? With the contrast, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now there's a general statement. Walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Right? That's a general statement. And then the following verses, particularly when you get down to verse 19, 21, flushes out what it looks like to walk by the flesh. So there you have a paragraph which goes from general to specific. So you got the specific statements about gratifying your flesh and specific statements in 22 and 23 which talk about how to walk by the spirit. Well, that's the kind of idea when we're talking about a paragraph. There's, there's those statements that are made, and the rest kind of deals with it. So you, you don't want to just go, well, I'm going to pull out a pull out something here without trying to understand or explain the rest of it. You know, when we walked through that passage in our evening services over the last months, we talked about that at length in detail as to what that looked like so that we would have a full understanding of that. So you have that, right? General to specific. Secondly, you have questions and answers. Is that up there Yeah. Questions and answers. So sometimes the author in a biblical text will begin with a question, typically a rhetorical question, and then they'll proceed to answer that rhetorical question, right? For example, Romans chapter 6 says what? Romans chapter six verse one. Somebody read that for us. What shall we say then? Is that the whole verse one? Okay, read verse one. Romans chapter six verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So there's the question, right? Romans six one begins with that question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might? Abound, Or grace might increase. And then verse 2 answers the question. What's it say? By no, means. May it never be. By no means. May it never be. How shall we continue in sin? Right? So that's the idea. There's questions being asked and answers being given, which help us understand what the author's intent is. So you have general to specific, and you have questions and answers. And third, sometimes you have a dialogue taking place, conversation going between two or more people, right? Might be a hypothetical conversation. Maybe it's just a part of a parable that's being said that that is stated where two people are speaking. And so you have to ask all kinds of questions when you come to those things. Who's, who's talking? Who's speaking? You notice in when I was teaching on Sunday morning in Luke chapter 7, I said there were three people involved in the incident, right? The situation. There were more people there, but three people that were talking, or three people that were involved in that. You had Jesus, you had the woman, and you had the Pharisee Simon. So you had all three of those things going on in this conversation. So who are the speakers? What's the setting? Are there other people that are there participating? Is there some kind of argument being made, some kind of discussion going on? Is it a lecture happening? Maybe some kind of friendly exchange taking place between them? In other words, what's the point of the dialogue? Remember the dialogue Jesus has with the woman in Samaria in John chapter 4? The dialogue starts about water for the well. Give me something to drink. Well, I have living water? If you knew who I was, you'd have living water. And she says, well, give me this water. And he says, well, you know, go. Uh, she says, let me go to my husband. He says, you have five husbands. You've had five husbands. She says, Whoa, this guy knows more about me than I thought. Right? All that goes on. So there's that dialogue going on. And again, I talked about the one from Luke that we just taught last, last yesterday. So you have general to specific things happening in paragraphs. You have questions and answers going on that build paragraphs. You have dialogues happening, and then you have purpose statements. Purpose statements in paragraphs. The author's purpose is to state the reason, the result, or the consequence of some kind of action. Um, We get this in Ephesians chapter 2, a very well-known passage that we often quote Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 there's a purpose I'll begin with verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works there's the purpose Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So there's an author's purpose statement right there. God saved us, not so that we could just do whatever we wanted. We live any way we wanted. We would go around telling people we're righteous people and live in any way we want according to the things that we've decided. No, God has created good works that we should walk in those. If we're saved, that's how we ought to live. Can't say, well, that's your interpretation. No, no, it isn't. That's That's what God means by what he says. How do you know that? Because that's what God says. Because that's what the verbs mean. What the English means. That's what the words mean. God meant to 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 communicate with us so that we would do what God says. And so we have to find the meaning of what God says or we don't have the word of God. If we don't understand what God meant by what he says, we don't have the word of God. We have our own word. And so someone could rightly say to us, well, that's, that's what you say. And they'd be right. I don't want to be able to, I don't want somebody to say, well, that's what you say, and be right about it. I want to say, well, here's what it says. I mean, I I remember years ago when I was in Ohio pastoring, I had um, someone get very angry, left the church, very angry because we were having a a situation in the church where we sadly had to bring someone up uh, under church discipline to the church. And I went to the man's house to, to talk to him afterwards. And he was very angry. He said, I'm not going to a church where you air the dirty laundry of people in front of everybody else. And I said, Well, I I don't want to go to a church like that either. And I just turned to Matthew 18. I said, Then you read it and tell me what it means. He said, You tell me what it said. Because that's that's what it says. Tell it to the church. He said, I'm not reading that. And I said, Well, there's the problem. So we have to know what it means. I don't want to just make it up. That doesn't help. It doesn't help us, right? We have to know what God means by what he says. So We have to know what's in a sentence. We have to know what's in a paragraph. And uh, do you guys want to go till 830? We can go to 830. Is that good? We can go to 830. Thumbs up, thumbs up. Three thumbs up, four thumbs up. Okay. Okay, we can maybe finish paragraphs if we talk fast. When I was an air traffic controller, my boss said, if you get busy, talk faster. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk faster. Number five, how how something is accomplished is in a paragraph. So look for the means by which the reason, the result, or the consequence takes place. Look for the means by which those things take place. In other words, how is the purpose accomplished? How is the purpose accomplished? Accomplished. Okay. Number six, conditional clauses. We're going to, later on, we are going to spend a lot of time on clauses because clauses are extremely important. I won't say as important as verbs, but they are very important because oftentimes people will find meaning in clauses And try to say that's the meaning when clauses are modifiers, helpers. So we have to understand conditional clauses. Clauses provide the conditions for which actions, consequences, realities, and results occur. Yes. Clauses provide the conditions under which... Some actions and consequences or realities or results occur. Okay, conditional clauses, right? Clauses provide the conditions, clauses provide the conditions under which some actions some consequences, reality, or results occur. Oftentimes, conditional clauses begin with with these words, if or unless. There are others, but those are very typical, if or unless. Those are conditional, what we would call conditional conjunctions, that introduce a type of a clause. We're going to look at clauses more, so I don't want to get you into the weeds in clauses yet, but just understand in a paragraph, there's all kinds of conditional clauses that can be there. Number seven, actions of people and God. So identifying who is doing the action and who's not is critical for interpreting the Bible who's doing the action, who's not doing it. So ask yourself, what is God up to in this passage? What's God doing? Ask yourself, what part do people play in this? And is there a connection between those two? What part does God play? What part do people play? Is there a connection in there? And if so, what is it? Ephesians chapter 5, just as an example, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So what are the roles of people in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2? Yeah, be imitators of God, walk in love, understand how Christ walked because you're going to be just as he did, right? Just as Christ was an offering, a sacrifice, all of those things are our role. So the actions of people and God are important in a paragraph. Number eight, emotional terms. Emotional terms. All right, and when I say that, I, what I what we mean by that is the Bible is not a book of abstract, technical information. It's not what it is. The Bible is not just a book that we have all these abstract things going on and we don't get to understand because it's a bunch of technical information. The Bible is a book about relationship. It's about relationship with the Creator God and His people. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the words and phrases that bring about that strong, those strong emotions? We read words like love and hate and familial words like father and mother and son, child, right? Plead, that's an emotional word. What about words like pluck out your right eye? Emotional word, cut off your right hand. There's a lot of emotion in those things, right? So we have to look Glad those aren't What's that? Glad those words are Exactly. Glad that's not technical. So we have to we have to understand it's not just abstract. Right? It's not just out there. There's meaning there and there's an understanding that needs to be brought about. And then finally tone. Tone And that's usually just determined by studying a collective amount of emotional terms. Right? Gather tone from from the emotional terms used when Jesus was on the cross and he breathed his last. That was an emotional moment. Certainly the tone of it was very somber. You know, we don't we don't when you read that, you don't hear music in your head like like a, a player piano in the background you know it's a very somber moment so it helps us with with being encouraged right when there's when the tone is an encouraging tone we're encouraged by that or when it's a a rebuking tone we we understand that i'll just show you an example of this go to colossians 3 we're going to compare that with Galatians 3, okay? So Colossians 3. This will be the last thing we do. Notice Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Apostle Paul, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Very encouraging, right? Very very uplifting words and emotion. Now go, go back to Galatians 3. Notice, notice verses one to four there of Galatians three, you foolish Galatians who bewitched you, whose eyes, who, before whose eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of law or by hearing of faith? You are so, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. I mean, you can just hear the emotion. Here, Paul is just like, what is going on with you? Right? Colossians 3, hey, this is how I, same writer, it's the same writer. Man, I want you to be so encouraged by what you are in Christ. Galatians, what's happening to you? What's the problem with you? Same writer, yet the emotion is so different. We have to look for those things in paragraph. So we know what sentence, what's in a sentence? Look for all kinds of those different things in a sentence. And what's in a paragraph that sentences make up. Next time we'll look at what's in a discourse. What's in a discourse? See, we're starting small, getting bigger, gonna get even bigger. What's in a discourse next time? Any questions? Are there any questions from anybody? Yeah, Terry, we got a we got a question. So, yeah, multiple verses. Yeah, right, right. Uh, well it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily be a paragraph in the technical sense of the word but in order to understand the full sense of all that Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14 you have to break it down to smaller parts Exactly you need to, so you can yes you need to you need to know the full deal so you can understand the parts it's it's not it's not necessarily a paragraph because because the paragraph goes farther than that in that book, yeah, in that book, I'm just telling you that, yeah, it goes farther than that but but in the original language, I think paul was simply just so enraptured by what we have in Christ that he couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop saying it. And, of course, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so this is God allowing it. And and God says, okay, finally, put a period there, would you? You know? Put a period there. You're exhausting, people. Yeah, we're going to stop there. So, yeah. So, good question. All right. Let's uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for tonight, for this opportunity to be together once again. Thank you for the faithfulness of these people who just want to understand, understand what your word means, what it says, how we can all learn together. Thank you for their attentiveness. Bless uh, our time, bless their their own studies, and bless their understanding of these things so that they might grow uh, in Christ all to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.